Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I am joined by Carl Richards, named Saint Carl by Josh Brown, uh, <laughs> philosopher king, behavioral finance influencer, not a thought leader, but here he is right here in his hometown of Park City. Thank you for yeah. joining me, Carl. Thank you. Super fun. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Awesome to be here with you. Yeah. So... It feels like I was going through some of your content over the last day or two in preparation for this conversation, and yeah. it feels like you've taken a turn for the philosophical. Is that is that accurate? Explain to me what you mean. Tell me. It, it feels like you've moved away from things that are sort of nominally behavioral finance mm. and more into, like, we'll mm. call it life stuff. Mm. And I just wonder if that's consistent with your own... Yeah, there's been... Um that's super interesting. So I have intentionally moved, and I don't know if it's, if it's moved, but I've, I've been very intentional about trying to move from tactic mm. to mindset. So philosophy I like even better. Mm-hmm. Like I've been very intentional around why instead of how or what. And... The reason for that is I find, I know for me at least, and I'm certain for most of your audience, like the thoughtful people who think of themselves as planners and calculators and, you know, like they're, when we get really tactical, often tactics are a place we hide. Like if I could just research a little bit more about which time management system I can use, Mm -hmm. I can avoid actually doing anything, right? (laughs) If I get a, if I, oh, compliance, that's like advisor's favorite place to hide. Like, it was, so, so when we get down to tactics and one of the, one of the reasons for this, and I've just seen this over and over and over, Seth Godin tells this story. I don't know if it's true, but he tells the story of Stephen King at a writer's conference and Stephen King, you know, a couple thousand people there at this writer's conference, Stephen King gives this talk. And during the Q and A, somebody asked Mr. King, what type of pencil do you use? And that's a really good example for the like, what? It doesn't matter. Like, right. but, but if Stephen King tells you what kind of pencil he uses and either A, you can't buy that pencil, you don't like that pencil, the pencil's not available to you, it's right. out of reach, like suddenly you have permission to hide. Whereas if Stephen King says it doesn't matter, sit down and write, like you've got less permission to hide. So that may be some of the shift. I don't know about the shift from behavioral finance I don't know that I've ever, like, I leave that to the people who are much, much smarter than me, you, and I look at Brian Portnoy and your work. I've been more of a, I notice this thing in the world, mm-hmm. and I try to name it and try to talk about it a bit, and so that may be what you're, I don't know if that's helpful. It's super helpful. I think there's, um, I think there's so much value in seeing that thing in the world, naming it, codifying it, and, and talking about it. And you know, I could be projecting here because my, sort of my, the arc of my own career is, is hopefully towards more life stuff. You know, I hope to one day be sort of a 
Victor Frankl 2.0 uh, sort of right. you know, talk see, about yeah. the meaning of life, purpose of life yeah. thing. But you know, when I was training to be a psychologist, you enter, I mean, I was a whopping 23 years old when I started my PhD program and started mm -hmm. giving people advice about how to live their life. Right, right, <laughs> so, right. So, so you know, you're, you're immediately hungry for tactics. And the first thing we learned is that you can apply a tactics in a way that's divorced from an underpinning of philosophy, yeah. right? And if yeah. you do that, it doesn't honor the complexity of the person sitting across from you. Right. Uh, I think it treats people as overly deterministic uh, and it's just kind of gimmicky and like, get out of my way, right? Like, you know, like, let, let me fix you and wash my hands of you. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was always something we kind of struggled with, but it was something we were definitely told to do. And I spoke to a group of um, financial therapists recently, and some of them were, they were more therapy than finance, right? Yeah. And they were sort of asking me, what, what training do advisors go through to sort of choose a <laughs> theoretical orientation? And I was right. like, well, none. Like, I'm, right. you know, I don't even know what those words none. mean. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like a school of thought from which right. to intervene, right? Yeah. Maybe that's your next project, is to come up with the school of thought. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know, man. So, but what's interesting about two things, um, one is I think you and I have talked about this before, that money is just a righteous trick hmm. into the stuff we really care about. 100%, yeah. Like, I mean, we could have used food, mm -hmm. and I, but I think money's more interesting. And it's just, I don't really care at all about money. I only care because it gives me a, 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 a an entry. Hmm. And I use the word righteous trick intentionally, like it's not a bait and switch. It's like in service of the other person is mm -hmm. what I think. Like this is a trick in service of the other person. It's a righteous trick into the conversations that really matter. And so I think we're all headed that direction, right? Like mm -hmm. behavioral finance to me is just can I understand these things so that I know what to call them? I I have a sense of the landscape, so I know when the ground is shifting beneath my feet, kind of maybe why it is, but really then I can have a conversation about like, oh, wait, wait, why does that really matter to you? Like, mm -hmm. what were you trying to do? What was the problem you were trying to solve? What, what's beneath, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think, that's, that, I, think, I think that's the same place you're pointing to. Yeah. Right? You know, Portnoy did this behavioral finance 2.0 uh, tweet thread. I've heard Meyer Statman talk about sort of behavioral finance second generation. I see the arc of my career and, and your career. And it seems like there's less, you know, talking about in, enumerating endlessly long lists of biases, right? And right, all the ways right, we're screwy. Right, right. And there's more and more talking about wholeness and, and wellness and, and, you know, what does it take to live a good life? So maybe yeah. your career is, um, emblematic of this larger shift too. Yeah, I don't, I, I, largely to me, it's about solving problems that I'm having, mm. right? Yeah. And I am 50 mm -hmm. and I'm sitting around with a group, my age cohort, like I can't tell you the number of conversations. And they often happen here mm -hmm. in Park City because somebody's visiting. It, I, like this is two days in a row. I've been on hikes with people from out of town this morning. Yeah. It's almost every week that somebody comes in and says, look, Carl, I've read your work, and ooh, I, I, can I talk to you? Mm -hmm. And I used to sit at a very specific table in the coffee shop because I was trying to embed the table with this emotional patina of these conversations because I knew what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. The conversation was almost always like, 
hey, I'm 47. I just sold a business. Yeah. I've got more money than I know what to do with. And I'm super bummed. Yeah. Like, I'm lonely. Like, is this what it was all for? Yeah. And I, that, to me, like, that's a really interesting, like, how did we all do the thing we were told to do and end up in a spot where we're like, was this really what it was about, right? And so that's a far more interesting question to me than, you know, how do we rebalance a portfolio? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, riffing off of that, you, know, you, you recently tweeted, if I'm insecure around money, more money won't solve that. Yeah. And this is maybe to your coffee table conversation, right? Yeah. So if I'm insecure around money, more money won't solve that. Is that what you meant by that? That people have been kind of chasing the wrong dream and then when they arrive at the top of the mountaintop, it's not quite as fulfilling as they thought? Or Yeah. Well, I, I think security particularly, like I, I'm working on a project right now that um, is it involves TV, right? And we're out looking for, I've called them sort of the wizards of enough. Uh-huh. And we're out looking for people who've figured out like who are secure. And what's interesting is we're having a harder time finding people with lots of money ah. that are secure than we're, we are finding people with very little money that are secure. And so, I, and I've noticed this with, with plenty of friends mm-hmm. that like, wait, so I think it's true with happiness too. I think like if I'm unhappy, more money won't solve that problem mm-hmm. because it's a job that money's not built to solve. So I don't, security, now financial security, if you want to get really specific, but even financial security, like how many people do we know with tens of millions of dollars, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars who are worried it's all going to go away tomorrow? Yeah. So it's a different job to become secure, right? It's not about money. Now, once you're secure, does more money help or hurt? I don't know, but I just know that it won't solve the problem. Well, let's talk about problems that money does solve. So we just commissioned a study at Orion and and I I hope I'm not jumping the gun here. I know. uh, We'd love it. Go ahead. Jump the gun. Okay. So if you look at the national surveys on marital communication around money. They're abysmal, right? It's like 12, 12% of people have never had a single conversation with their spouse about money. Like something like 40% of young people, uh, you know, 40% of people under the age of 40 fight about money weekly. And you know, it's just like on and on and on, right. bad, bad, bad. Right. So we can commissioned a study that was more reflective of our client base, which is people who are not making 40,000 bucks a year. It's people who are making 150 plus. Mm-hmm. And so among this sample, a lot of that bad stuff went away. Mm. Like mm. among our sample, they were uh, much less stressed out. They were um, much mm. had reported much better relationships with their partners, much less disagreement. Mm. Um, all that stuff, like every bad thing, was sort of ameliorated by having more money. So there are. I know you're not saying money doesn't do anything, but you're yeah. saying money is a tool that doesn't, you know, uh, it doesn't solve every problem. Are there problems that it solves well and ones that it solves poorly? Yeah, I mean, I think it solves uh, having running water in the house. Sure. Right? It's not like these sort of base level things. I mean, I think you can make an argument for education. Mm -hmm. You could probably make an argument for experiences. Like we've been able to have experiences with our kids that I did not have growing up. Mm -hmm. Those are valuable. do those establish the conditions under which these other things are more likely to happen? I, I, I 
don't know. You mm-hmm. probably would know better than I do. Um, I'm surprised at that result of the mm-hmm. survey. Like that's surprising to me because most of the people I talk to use the word anxious when they describe their feelings around money. Like yeah. that, that's surprising to me given the nature of where we are in the world right yeah. now. Um, but yeah, what does money do well, right? It, I, I think to me, what money does well is buys me experiences. Yeah. Freedom and experiences. Yeah. I think money kind of sorts out the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy and then right. it's like up to us. Like, right. oh, totally. Right? Like you get the hygiene needs met, like you got enough to eat, safe place to stay. Yeah. And then all the existential stuff we have to kind of figure out on our own. Yeah, it's super. I've, I've had this debate with a friend of mine recently because he's got plenty of money and he, he argues that, no, it was a critical component to me feeling safe and secure was having this pool of money. And I'm like, I can't argue that that's untrue. Yeah. What I can argue, it was it, that it wasn't conditional on that. Like being safe and secure is not because I know people who don't have that right. and are the most secure people I've ever met. Yeah. So we all can take the counter to that to say, look, I know people with more money than they could ever, ever, ever spend their grandkids ever who are the most miserable, unsafe, yeah. unhappy people. And then I know people with almost nothing well, basically nothing. Yeah. That are happy, safe, secure. Right? Safe maybe a, a relative term in that case, but secure uh-huh. and happy. So, I, I is it easier? That's the claim we all make. I don't know. I'm going to assume that it's easier. Have in, in your Wizards of Enough project. I don't know how deep you are into the project, yeah. but yeah. I'm fascinated. Like, have you found any common thread that runs through the Wizards of Enough? Like, have they? What's have you yeah. locked a secret? No, no, no. I mean, I, the the piece that I'm super interested in is this element of, for lack of a better term, I'm calling it craft. Mm-hmm. Like there's some craft, some by craft I mean like craftsmen, not yeah. like like necessarily like sewing or <laughs> like, like yeah. but some like there's some commitment to, um, a thing outside themselves that they're dedicated to. And often that would be, like I'm thinking about a family in Italy that makes 100-year-old aged balsamic vinegar. Mm-hmm. And like the son who's running the business now wouldn't have a job if somebody didn't put it in the barrel 100 years ago. Right. And none of his work, he's not going to see the fruit of any of his work. Yeah. Because it's going to be 100 years from now. Right. That commitment to that level of craftsmanship or something outside of yourself seems to be there. These like I'm thinking Yvonne Chouinard, right? Patagonia made a bunch of news this week. Yeah, super interesting that Yvonne cares nothing about money. What does he care about? Like he cares about making good. Originally, it was just climbing gear. Yeah. So I don't know if there's something there, but that's fascinating to me. Craft things that last, enduring. Like I don't know what that is. You would know better. This is the other thing I was going to tell you earlier. I love it when, and I have this experience often when super smart people show up and say, hey, Carl, that's cute that you think that that idea is called this. It's actually called this, right? right. right? That's my favorite <laughs> yeah. thing, and I get those emails all the time. It's cool that you thought you discovered this. But well, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. well that, yeah. and here, did you know it oh. has a name? Yeah, okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because once it has a name, you're suddenly like, oh. Yeah. And so I'm always, now I go looking for those. I'm like, somebody else has talked about this. What's it called? Yeah, the, the craft piece, you know, we're in an economy now where the, the preponderance of us make nothing ever, except maybe PowerPoint decks and tweets, right? right? And it just, 
<clears throat> you, you do wonder if there's something to, it feels like there's a movement kind of back to the land, if you will, like back to people wanting to make things with their hands and back to mm-hmm. sort of a simpler way of doing things. I'll be fascinated to know if you if you find that as that yeah. that sort of tangible craft piece as, as being part of it. Yeah, and I don't even know if that's the right word, but that's the word that I've something with patina. Yeah. Something that lasts, you know? There's some hunger to that. Part of it may be that great essay, which the essay was called, you know, the longer form of BS jobs, right? Like yeah. if you've read that essay, it's amazing that like something like 40 percent plus of Americans not only feel like, but openly acknowledge that their job serves no purpose. Right. Like, what does that do to you as a human? Fascinating, right? Like, how do we deal with that? And what, and what placement do we place it? Well, I'm just doing that job because I gotta pay my car insurance, right? Well, no, absolutely. And you think about, you know, speaking of recent news, right? A couple of weeks ago, this is the first time in peacetime in American history where we've had a declining um, life expectancy and a decline quite precipitously, it's a couple of years, uh, we're we're falling. And it's the first time we've not been at war that that's been the case. And there's really like two contributing factors. COVID is one, okay? So of course, you know, COVID is one. Uh, But the other one is what they call deaths of despair, right? Mm -hmm. This is uh, overdoses and suicides. And by and large, these deaths of despair are afflicting affluent middle-class and better communities. These are people who had every advantage. These are people whose, you know, parents took them to soccer and got them violin lessons and they're killing themselves and they're getting hooked on drugs uh, and and shortening the lifespan. It's happening at such a clip that it's shortening the lifespan of the, uh, the American life, right? By by two and a half years or whatever it is. wild. And so it's like, there's, there's something, there is some sort of cancer of modernity or whatever. There's something missing in our current milieu. We're in the richest country that's ever been and people are dying of despair. Yeah. Yeah, I'd read something, and I don't, we don't probably want to spend too much time on this subject, but some, sub, uh, some survey in the UK that they do each year, of, and the question is, how many people could you call in an emergency? Mm. And for the first time ever, the most common answer, because it can't be the average, but the most common answer was zero. Zero, yeah. Nuts. Crazy. And I've just been shocked. I've been actually, I, like I appointed myself vice president of unspeakable things for our industry. Mm-hmm. So I'd show up at conferences and talk about this. Yeah. And it's just this like hilarious, like masters of the universe, folded arms. I don't know what you're, what's he on about until after. And then. Then in the hallway, yeah. it's this look around, make sure no one's listening. And people are like, me too, brother. Like, I, I'm not sure what to do about this. Right. And so that gets all the way back to our early conversation about philosophy. Like the big question I'm asking is like, why? Yeah. What, what, well, what could we change? Could we connect to a thing? Could we be involved in a craft? Could we do work that matters, to, at least to us? And can we do it in a way that we're proud of, right? Yeah. So is it vice president of Unspeakable Things? Unspeakable Things, I, I don't yeah. want to get your title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> please, please. Vice yeah. president, are you a managing yeah. director? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So as vice president of Unspeakable Things, what other things are we not speaking about as an industry that, that are topical that we need to address? Yeah, I think our lack, I mean, that's the broad category we just talked about, but our lack of resilience generally, that we look like fundamental to the job of giving financial advice 
is giving kind of mission critical. Like somebody may have, like you know what the money's for, right? Somebody may have cried in your office. You know that money's for Sally's school. Like you've got to look them in the eyes and give advice that you don't know. So the way I think about it is mission critical advice in the face of irreducible uncertainty. Mm. Right, incomplete information. You, we don't know. Anybody who lived through two thousand eight, two thousand nine, knows what that feels like to look somebody in the eyes and go, "I got you." Like, stay with me, and then walk out of the conference room and shut the door. I'm speaking from experience. I remember the feeling of the door handle mm-hmm. with Dan and Barbara. I remember exactly who it is, and looking at the door handle as I shut the conference room door, saying, "Jeez, I hope I'm right." Yeah. Right in the middle of that. So I think that resilience. And how do we deal with it and diet, food, connection to tribe, you know, sleep. Like, those are the kind of things that none of us are, like, we're not talking about. And good, like, I'm seeing it actually more and more. Like, five years ago, it was, like, not talked about. Do you feel like we as an industry try to artificially reduce certainty when it's irreducible through the use of whatever? For sure, Carlo simulate whatever. We are. Projections. We've become. We're as an industry, and I use that term carefully, like financial services industry, of which maybe there is a profession that we belong to, but that profession is part of the industry, so that's why I'm using that term because I get. I'm going to get email about this. Yeah, industry, industry. So we, as an industry, we've become sellers of certainty, mm. and selling certainty is easy to. It's easy. Certainty is easy to sell. Yeah but impossible to deliver. To deliver yeah. And it's easy to sell because everybody wants to buy it. And I think that's part of the reason we have a trust problem is we've been committing to this, like, here's your 30-year path. Look how smart I am. I thought about every single assumption in here. This is what your life's going to look like. And next week, next year, it didn't look like that. And now I've sold that as if it was going to look like that. It's, we can use the same tools with different language, so I'm not even really talking about the tools here. So, yeah, I think... We, of course, we want to deliver. Humans have been looking for certainty forever. Yeah, no. Your your podcast co-host, our our buddy Michael Kitts, is right. He talked. I'm going to screw up my, my paraphrase here, but he's. I've heard him talk about Monte Carlo simulations, and I know the tool's not important, but this is just an example, yeah. right? And he said, "Look, like." basically an imperfect simulation is better than no simulation at all. Sure. Do we not have some responsibility to give, like get them in the ballpark and yeah. It, yeah. No, no responsibility or you, you think? We no. Can, yeah. Like, I think the language you just used yeah. in the ballpark sure. is different than I'm 97.234% oh, confident. No, yeah. Right. And this false sense of certainty that show false sense of precision that shows up when re- the reality of financial planning is that it's about being less wrong tomorrow. It's not about being precisely correct today. And we see this in other areas, like agile software, lean startup, mm-hmm. right? Where we, like, one of my favorite VC friends says that every pitch deck he gets, the first thing he does is flip to the projection section and tear it out. Right. Right? And if we just assume that goals are guesses, yeah. we're, we're guides in a changing landscape, not defenders of an outdated map. Yeah. Like, that becomes much more agile. It's a better job because you can deliver, Right. So anyway, that's what I'm thinking. One of the things that I've seen kind of writ large, I, I'm thinking about with religion in specific, but I'm sure there's other mm-hmm. examples, that people sort of live and die by the certainty sword, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like if you're, if you're selling certainty, if you're selling a black and white world and people encounter a shade of gray, right. they're thrown very hard when they right. encounter that shade of right. gray. Now, for a time... 
the promise of a black and white world is, is very comforting. But if your worldview uh, is not one that adheres to the terrain, sort of, you know, as people encounter it, I think people come disillusioned with you. I see. So I think, you know, advisors have to wrestle with what's the appropriate amount of guidance or, um, you know, forecasting or whatever to give my to give my clients, such that they won't feel like they're just hanging out in outer space. Mm-hmm. But it's not so definitive that they feel duped when inevitably things don't go as projected. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that's the beautiful dance yeah. of our industry. It's, it's uh, of the profession that we do. The craft of advice to me is about, you know, look, we know from some of the military doctrine that there are times when overconfidence is a necessary tool. Mm. Right? You don't want the paramedic that shows up while you're laying on the ground to tell you the truth. To tell you the odds, yeah. Yeah, they want, you want them to say, I've got you, you're gonna, you're gonna make it, come yeah. on, come on, hang with me. Even if they know you're gonna die. Yeah. Right, you don't want that. So there are times when overconfidence, well, like I always compare it to guiding in the mountains because I've done some of that. And I don't want, you know, if, if the, I know the guide's gonna build the best map possible. I know the guide's gonna map a route. I know the guide's gonna look at the weather. And then if we're up in the mountains and a storm rolls in, and I get a little scared, the last thing I want the guide to do is be defensive. Like, what are you mad at me for? Like, what? This is what the thing said. Like, I ran your Monte Carlo projection. I would much rather a real a guide mm-hmm. is empathetic at that point. Like, hey, I understand. Like, this, this is a little scary. I didn't anticipate the storm either. But guess what? I got a whole set of tools in my backpack. Yeah. I don't know where we're going exactly, and I don't know what we're going to see, but I know what to do the next step. I'm actually a pro at guiding people in conditions of uncertainty. That's the skill of an advisor. Like I want us to get better at that rather than better. I think we focus all our time on like, can we just get the spreadsheet bigger? Yeah. Like the spreadsheets are big enough. Like can we now just get, I call it reality-based financial planning. Can we just deal with the reality? Yeah. And the reality is we've, we've tried, what does Pema Children say? We've tried a thousand times to tie up all the loose ends and yet the ground is still shifting beneath our feet. The, the thing that I like, you kind of anticipated my follow-up question was, we're not leaving clients hanging because I mean, there's value in call it, you know, psychological placebo or whatever we want to call it, right? right. There's value in that, that battlefront doctor saying you're going to make it. So when that inevitable kink in the plan happens, we don't, you know, throw up our hands. We, we re-engage with our clients. We guide them to that new place and we do the best we can with the knowledge that we have at that moment in time. Well, yeah, and I think a step further, like we teach them that we were, like that's not a surprise to us. That's not a sign of failure. We didn't do something wrong. We knew this would happen. Well, the markets are scary. I knew the markets would be scary. I didn't know when or why, let's be clear, but this is in the data. Like Mm -hmm. we, it's happened in the the past. We knew it was gonna happen in the future. Do I look scared right now? Yeah. Like, do I look surprised right now? You know, I got you, right? Like, so, but the, the dance, you can, this is the way I like to put it, like you can be convinced that you've just built the best plan ever created on the planet Earth and at the same time know it's wrong. And holding those two competing facts in your head is what an adult has to do. Yeah. Those both can be true. Yeah. This is the best, best plan now. and it's wrong. Yeah. And when, it sh- when the wrongness shows up, I'm actively, this is what's interesting too, like strong opinion loosely held mm-hmm. and then actively looking for disconfirming evidence. 
not shocked by it, not trying to avoid it, not trying to confirmation bias my way out of it. When disconfirming evidence shows up, I'm actively looking for it. Like, I knew this was coming. I'm so glad it's here. This is a new piece of information that will allow us to course correct. I, you know, I've, I've written about this in my books. Like, asking why might I be wrong is one of the most difficult but most rewarding things a person can do. Yeah. I think it's really, it's really fascinating that we we seek this out in other parts of our lives uh-huh. and we avoid it like the plague. And like, you don't go to a movie because you know, well, some movies you do, but like, you don't go to, you go to a movie with at least the trick in your head that yeah. you think the plot will be different. Yeah. You don't read a good novel. You don't go to an art museum. I don't go surfing. I don't go into the mountains because I know what's going to happen. Yeah. In fact, I know the best part of every trip I do in the mountains is going to be the part that I didn't know was going to happen. Right. Right, so I pay for that in other areas of life. We call it surprise. Yeah, right. We call it suspense. And in in this planning area of our lives, we we avoid it. And I'm just saying, what if we just flip the switch a bit and like actively look for the disconfirming evidence? <laughs> Plot twist, bear market. I love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. So you know, I want to circle back to something you said a, a moment ago. You you talked about uh, proper diet, exercise, sleep, things like that. Now. The importance of those things cannot be overstated. And mm-hmm. when I was a clinical psychologist, this was always something I led with. And it was uniformly hated. <laughs> you know, I, I told the story. I talked to Morgan on my podcast last week, Morgan Housel, and he, yeah. we were talking about this. And I had a client who was presenting with panic attacks. This gentleman would wake up every morning and drink six cups of coffee and then come to me and say, hey, my heart's racing. And I would go, oh, yeah, you know, correct. Like, let's try and rule that out and then, you know, go from there. Everybody kind of wants the silver bullet. So, you know, two questions here. Is it the role of a financial advisor to get involved in the the nutritional life, uh, you know, the diet, exercise, wellness of a client? Yeah. And, um... Well, that question. Yeah, I was referencing the advisors. Oh, their own resilient, their own, their own. When you asked me what the unspeakable things are that Uh, we were talking about, I'm talking about the advisors, us as a community, saying, "Hey, you know what? I kind of want you around for a little while." Okay, pivot then. Yeah, you have this guide to. Is called guide to scary markets. Yeah, yeah. guide to scary markets that you give away free. People will go go grab it. Yeah, and there's there's two parts to it, but one part is all about advisor self care. Right. Right. And I think that's commonly overlooked. And, you know, there was research coming out of the um, 2008 crisis that showed that the vast majority of financial professionals showed clinical levels of anxiety, depression, and in many cases, even post-traumatic stress. And the other thing we know about communication is that most of it is nonverbal. And so you were talking when you were giving your example. You said, "Hey, look at me. Do I look stressed?" Well, I think a lot. Right, right. right. <laughs> I think right. a lot of our brothers and sisters do look very stressed yeah. and are, and are very stressed. Yeah. So, where can we as a community take better care of ourselves on route to taking better care of our clients? Yeah, and it's back to your earlier point about your pa- your patient or client that drank six cups of coffee, and you're saying it was universally hated. Yeah, it's true. Like I remember when I was in that spot mm-hmm. in 2008, 2009, my whole world was collapsing. And I would stay up at night to yeah. see where Asia opened. Like, why? Would, and my wife would come in and go, hey, like, super gently, sometimes a punch in the face, but mostly just an empathetic hug. She would say, hey, like, I think maybe you should go to bed. And I would be like, the, wor- like, the world's falling apart? Like, the, it's on fire and you want me to go to bed? Yeah. You know, so it, that same sense of, like, at, at a certain point, 
like, but the unfortunate truth is it's the only way, yeah. right? How can we get just a little, I like to think of it as just a little air in the shocks mm. because the same path with air in the shocks feels totally different than with no air in the shocks. Mm. So we can get a little, like in the place I would start because I think it's the easiest place to me. Well, I mean, two, one, the one thing I like the most is physical. I was going to point to sleep because it's like the foundational piece. If we can just get a little better sleep, a little more air in the shock shows up and then we might be able to eat a little better. Yeah. Like just, but I love also the physical nature, doing something physical because of the transference of, um, you feel like you can see the marginal gains slowly over time. Like if you just start walking for 10 minutes a day and like that's already hard. I started um, training for a, a big objective in the mountains like six months ago and I, and I just noticed the other day that I'm running on trails mm -hmm. at the same heart rate that I couldn't walk up those trails six months ago. Wow. Right, and the marginal, and so what happens to me is that margin, that transfers into other areas of my life. So it feels to me like physical is the easiest place to start. Like get in the gym and, and have somebody teach you how to lift a weight and do that for three, four, five months and you're lifting way more and you can go, hey, if I can do that here. And then what else, the other thing that happens about physical is I feel like eating a little better. I feel like I'm tired. So I feel like going to sleep a little earlier. So that's where I like, I think physical is the, the like lever. So it could yeah. be as simple as walking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, like you said, I, I feel like it's a virtuous cycle because I find when I eat better, I have more energy to work out. When I work out, I go, well, I'm not going to eat that junk. Right. I just, you know, burn it. You know, I just you sleep better. Yes. Yeah, you sleep thing. better. I mean, totally. When you sleep better, you have more capacity to exercise self-restraint. Yeah. 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 I think this is, I think this can't be overstated. Like, I think yeah. we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's going on in Asia and the futures, right? Like, cause we're, we're back in it. Like, right. I mean, it's not like it was in 2008, but like we're back in it as yep. another bear market. Yep. And, you know, I think we spend a lot of time on externalities and maybe not enough time on ourselves. Yep. And I think we pay the price for that. I, yeah, I've tried to get, I'm trying to get to the point now where um, like something like checking where Asia is becomes a, a, a check engine light in my head. All right. So I see the check engine light and I just think the fact that I want to do that thing, whatever that thing is, like a real good example is like the fact that I want to send this angry email, yeah. the very fact that I want to is actually a sign that I shouldn't, mm -hmm. right? Like, and if I can get, like I'm trying to build a bunch of those sorts of tricks in my head that like the fact that I feel defensive right now with my spouse or a client is, is proof that I'm in the basement mentally and I shouldn't do anything. Because like, I can only, if I'm defensive, I am for sure in the basement. So those warning signs, I'm trying to build those sorts of feedback loops which say, if you're feeling defensive, you're in the basement, therefore you need to go on a walk. Yeah. Instead of write that email, right? I think that's a great, I think it's a great mental shortcut. You know, I think sometimes it's somatic. Like for me, it's like my back hurts. It's like, well, yeah. I'm stressed smart. out. Like, smart. You know, I need to, I need to Super take, take a breath. I need to do something. But can I just, I'm so, like, I really like put a fine point on the somatic piece. Like, yeah. I think we've gotten so disconnected from that. Yeah. If we can start to just learn, like I know exactly where I feel that feeling of like, I'm a little impatient and I'm a little tired at home. I can, I know exactly where it is now. And whenever I, feel that now I can feel like right now hunching over shoulder like I can mm -hmm. feel how much different I feel if I just open up a little bit 
oh, that fact that I'm feeling out of my back mm-hmm. probably means I should take a little break or yeah. I should go on a walk or I should, you know, like, and I love building the patterns in. Like I have a friend who every time he has a thought like that, we built in a, he had a, a, a recurring a recurring problem that he would go search for certain sorts of stuff on the internet. Mm-hmm. And there would be a thought and the thought would trigger the search on the internet. And we just replaced it with go get an orange. <laughs> so he's like, the thought now means go get an orange. Right. Or he was like, I don't always have oranges. Like, well, do you like to be outside? Yeah. He's like, well, now the thought is I'll just get my head outside. And it, like building in those loops. Anyway, I think that's super helpful. I think we should be talking more about this internally, at least in, in the industry. Yeah, no, for the listeners, I hope you'll figure out, I love this idea of Carl's. I hope you'll go figure out what your check engine light looks like. It's, it's different for anyone, but I mean, we'll do anything but face a problem head on, right? Yeah. It'll be anger or defensiveness that feels justified in the moment if we don't pause. Like yeah. it'll be somaticization, which feels like, oh, my back hurts, I must have tweaked it. Like, yeah. I mean, anything but behavior change, right? right. Like yeah, anything yeah, yeah. but doing the hard work of, of yeah. behavior change. Yeah. You know, Carl, another theme I, I sensed in your, um, in your content recently was a sort of anti-hack Anti shortcut. You're, you're picking up on all the signals. Yeah. yeah, we're hitting. You're, you're talking to a doctor, my guy. Yeah. No, um, what? Mm. Talk talk to me about the anti hack, anti shortcut thing. Yeah, I get. This is the one. There's only a few things that make me want to punch people in the teeth, and one of them is I call it success porn. Feels like a bit of a check engine light for you, sir. No, it is. No, it is for sure. But like this success porn, because it's so dangerous. And it's interesting you bring up Morgan. So uh, Morgan was here a little while ago and we were on a hike and I was asking him about the book and the success of the book. And I don't think, I don't, if you're not inside the publishing world, I don't know that you know. I know you know, but listeners, like, I don't know what the number would be. Point zero 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 one percent of books. Like it's it's not it's not one percent. It's way less than one percent. Because most books, most business books, I think it's even like ninety percent of business books sell less than five thousand copies. Morgan has sold three million copies last time I checked, or maybe it's two. But whatever it is, it's over a million. Yeah, over a million. By the time by the time this airs, it will be three because it's just the compounding impact. So anyway, what's interesting is I've noticed online. Like, I've noticed people writing Twitter threads about how to repeat Morgan Housel's success. Yes. Like, I've seen those, right? I'm having a conversation with Morgan about the next project. And he's like, I don't know if I can repeat. Like, in fact, I w- it would be kind of silly of me to assume that I could repeat. Like, he used the phrase, I've caught lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. So what is interesting to me is if Morgan Housel is unsure about how to repeat Morgan Housel's success... What makes the cute little seven thread hack tweet? Right. So that's the kind of thing that I'm like, it's so interesting. And the reason I think we do this is because we, we're confused. We think we live in a simple system when we really live in a complex adaptive system. Yeah, it's back to irre- irreducible uncertainty. Right? Yeah. We're like, oh, this is if, if A, then B, yay. Yeah, I'll if A, there's a process yeah. I know exactly, just follow these steps. And the reason I care so much about it is I hear from so many younger advisors who want to start playing in traffic doing public work, they follow some hack, it doesn't work, they feel disappointed, they go look for some other hack, it doesn't work. The reality is, in a complex adaptive system, even with the benefit of hindsight, you can't explain what happened. Mm-hmm. All you have, this is great terminology from the literature, like all you have is myth and story. Yeah. And we want somebody to reduce it to a simple hack. The truth of the matter is the only hack, the best shortcut on the planet, 
is to quickly realize there are no shortcuts. Mm. And that if you're doing new and novel work, there will be no ground beneath your feet. Mm-hmm. And that you've just got to get, I like the somatic idea, like you've just got to get clear about what you want to do. Embrace the uncertainty of it all and ask yourself one simple question. Like, what am I to do next? Because in that act of doing the next thing, new information will show up. It might be tailwind. It might be a stop sign. We don't know. It'll be interesting either way. And then I can repeat that over and over and over. And I just think those hacks are super dangerous. Do we try and take relational shortcuts when building trust with clients? I mean, is this an area where we're trying to hack something that's inherently unhackable and there's no substitute mm. for... That's interesting. Tell me what you what you mean. I, I was um, projecting, right? I was reading yeah. your tweets and I'm like, I wonder what he's talking about here. So yeah. success porn is clear, clearly part of it and I'm yeah. right with you there. Yeah. But I just wonder too about, you know, you look at the best predictor of whether or not a client follows our advice kind of behaviorally yeah. is whether or not they trust us. Yeah. And in some respects, there's not a ton of shortcuts for building trust. I mean, it's just like showing up, being dependable, being yeah. at your best day after day. And like, yeah. you know, there's no, there's no magic words to say. There's no gimmicks. I don't know. So yeah. that was an extrapolation. You didn't say no, that. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, I do think what's interesting about that statement is sometimes I, I believe trust isn't always a function of the time. Mm. It's a function of the quality of the experience. Sure. Absolutely. So I do think, and you've certainly written about this, like, mm. We can build trust pretty quickly if we go to that place. Now, I don't want to get in because I'm not a question zealot, and I don't want to get into, Mr. King, what kind of pencil should we use? But we all know some of the work that people have done around asking really good questions in first meetings and getting to a spot where we, the client's like, oh, I didn't know we were going there. Yeah. Right? And, And so, but in terms of hacks, like to get, I think there is a hack. The hack is learn to ask good questions and listen. Yeah. Crazy. Right? Right? I almost don't care what the question is. Learn to ask a question, but more importantly, learn to ask follow-ups Yeah, and listen. What's been the biggest uh, boon to you personally in, in learning to ask good questions and listen? Because I think the importance of this is universally understood, nearly universally, right. and it's very unevenly applied. <laughs> right. right? Like what you, you're... You're someone who listens deeply, who thinks deeply. I mean, for the listeners, like it's intense to be in conversation with Carl, right? Mm. Where did you learn mm. that? Oh, that's such a nice question. I mean, just thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm super curious about humans mm-hmm. and the. I'm sorry, I get, even get emotional about the idea of, you know, like, where did you come from? Mm-hmm. Why are you here? Like, what are you doing? And what's your thing? Like, I have this fundamental belief that everybody has a purpose mm-hmm. and a thing and that we all bury it and we cover it for all sorts of reasons. We, we've been trained to, mm-hmm. like, the kindergarten teacher, like, the whole story, right? Parents, society, who knows? But like, I'm just intensely curious about people and their things. And, my, and then the other, only other answer I'd have to that is my wife really pushes me to be quiet and ask questions. Like she's sent me on like business trips where the job, like I was going there to speak, right? Like there, I'm there to train or teach. Yeah. And she'll, ask, she'll tell me when I leave, like, hey, see if you could ask more questions this time. See if you could listen. 
And I, I've just found that those have been the most rewarding experiences of my life. I've also been shocked at the ninja trick. I think it's a ninja trick that I don't have the answers. I was in a, I was in a, in a role in our community, um, a volunteer role in our community where I, you, you don't in this role. It's in our church. You don't have much training, mm-hmm. and you know you get phone calls like. You know, Carl, somebody just, my daughter just left a really poignant suicide note. Can you come help? And you're the only person they know to call, right? Mm-hmm. You get in your car and you drive. And on the way over there, you realize, I don't know what to say here. And so what do you do instead is you ask questions and you listen. And I like to think God figures it out. And I found the same thing to be applicable with clients. With Like, I'd much rather say to a client, like, Oh, that's interesting. What have you thought of before? What have you tried? What have you noticed other people do? Because I almost always find them reach across the table and say, thanks, you helped me solve my problem. And you didn't say anything. So intuitively, that's just what I've been interested in. So that's why I, that's why I do that. Is I, I've, I've come to understand I don't know. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a great answer. And one of the things that shocks me about being a student of humankind is the ways in which what's gratifying to us is so fundamentally misaligned with what we think will gratify other people. Yeah, and the, so the example you just gave is perfect. We think that when we're called upon by a church member who's in crisis or a client who's having a hard time, we want to show up with all the answers. And that's like, we shoot for that. So we stay up watching the Asian futures market and try, right, trying right, to like, right, you know, glean right. some kernel of truth about where the world's headed. All they want is a caring, curious minded, right. caring person. I, mean, I, I look at it's so important. Maybe we can just put a fine point on that, that I, I think many of us don't rush into those burning buildings, mm-hmm. like a friend, a family member, a client. And we're like, know what to do here. We don't go in because we don't think we have the skills. I've had this experience repeatedly over the last 20 years where I felt myself like, in, I can hear it in my head. You're not going in there. Uh, yeah, uh, you, oh, there you go. Yeah. And, and I, I think if we could do more of that where we just realize like, I'm going to fire you. In fact, as listeners, I'm firing you. Mm-hmm. I'm firing you from needing to know the answer. They don't want it. I, I've struggled with depression in my life. I don't want you to tell me how to feel better. What I want you to do is sit with me, yeah, right? And I think we have all sorts of wisdom traditions that point to that, mm-hmm. right? We even have Jesus Christ saying, sit and watch, mm-hmm. sit and wait. And so I think if we can take from whatever wisdom tradition you follow, it, it, it happens in all of them. Yeah, Just show up, mm-hmm. just be there, just ask another question. Michael Bungay-Stanger, MBS, have you ever read much of it? Don't. You would love yeah, yeah, his work. So MBS is a coach. So mbsworks.com, and he's not that MBS. He's Michael Bungay Stainer. He says, like, he calls it the advice trap, like the advice monster. Mm. Like, you just want to rush in the moment you, he's like, could you just stay curious a little longer? Advice later, like, fine. But could you just stay curious a little longer? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's where we leave it because I think it's, I think it's so, I think it's so powerful. And, you know, I, um, I encounter advisors all the time who are like, well, I don't have eight years of college like you do uh, around human behavior. And I share with them the research which shows that when you look at the outcomes literature from psychotherapy, 
there is no difference in whether people get better uh, based on if someone has no degree, a bachelor's degree, or a PhD in wow. psychology. No difference. Wow. The number one predictor is rapport. It's connection. And so you don't mm. need eight years of college. Is that true? It's is totally it? true. There's yeah. no... There's no difference in clinical outcomes between people with no degree and a PhD. The number one thing that matters is rapport. That's it. And it's, how would you define rapport in that? Like, how do you... Well, it's self-reported by the client. Like, yeah. what, what level of connectivity do they feel right. with the person they're sitting across from? And if it's low, it doesn't matter if they got and all the knowledge in the, the world. And what is the best way to build connectivity? Asking great questions, listening, right? Yeah. And what, like, just real quickly, because I'm curious about, like, what's... There, like, that's a chemical process that goes on in the brain, right? Like if, if I ask you a really good question, I mean, it's yeah. the reason I love you so much right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's because you've been asking me really good questions. Yep. There's something actually occurring in my brain. Mm-hmm. Walk us through that process. Oh yeah. So there's, there's research out of Princeton that shows when two people sit in conversation, like we are too, right? You look at Carl's brain when we walked into this room and my brain and they don't look very similar, right? You know, we're each doing our own thing. We're each going our own direction. Mm-hmm. But when two people sit in conversation, it's like lockstep. You, you know, the same parts of your brain are lighting up. It's yeah. research done by Yuri Hassan at, at Princeton. Yeah. And this is the power of story. It's yeah. the power of narrative. It's the power of great questions and, and deep yeah. listening and, and curiosity about the human family. So yeah. that's, that's what it is. And that's so what, I, I just love that because it helps you understand this isn't just some woo-woo idea. Sure. And I love, what is it, oxy, oxytocin? Oxytocin, yeah. Uh-huh. Right, which is, a, as I understand it, a reaction that, uh, that occurs for me to feel fondness towards. Mm-hmm. And it often occurs when you ask me good questions. You listen to me. Mm-hmm. You listen to me. I generate oxytocin in my brain, which is essentially a yeah. fondness chemical. Yeah. The is that love, reasonable? The love drug, right? Yeah, yeah I, fondness was, I just want to go as far as love, Daniel. Yeah, you don't want to love me? No, I do love you, okay. Daniel. <laughs> well, I love you back. And I love the things that you've shared with my listeners today. Mm. Uh, your next project, can you talk about it at all? Where can people find you? Where can we learn about the Wizards of Enough? Because I'm super locked in on Yeah, this. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there. That's one of this sort of lottery tickets projects, sure, sure. but we're two years into it and super excited about it. So if, if we do it, you'll certainly hear about it. Um, you know, I, my favorite project I'm working on right now is clearly the work I'm doing with Elements, which I just love because it gets to the heart of a lot of what we talked about. So in terms of the best place to follow, um, I, think, I think Twitter is probably still mm-hmm. because everything, you know, you can find everything else there. Yeah. So Twitter, it's at Behavior Gap. If you're not familiar with Elements, go check out, I don't know what number it is, but go check out my previous conversation with Reese Harper, smart uh, smart guy right here in uh, the greater Salt Lake area. They're doing really cool stuff with some gorgeous technology that's helping to facilitate all the things we talked about. So, Carl, it's a pleasure, man. Thank you for coming out and making this happen. Amen, brother. Thank you. See ya. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only 
and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.